the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, a uh, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. She holds degrees from Yale and Harvard, has written for the New York Times, among many other accomplishments, including... Her uh, new book called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You by Catherine Kinsler, who joins me now by phone. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my, when I was growing up, my parents were very strict about grammar and... Um, and and I was constantly reminded of uh, something my grandmother used to say, once you say it, you can't take it back. But your book focuses on a very different aspect that uh, allows for or examines, rather, um, the fact that race, class, gender, a number of different things can impact the way people talk and the way they're perceived. You've got that exactly right. Um, that, you know, when we look out in the world, it's so easy to see these social divisions that are all around us, unfortunately. And so our race, our gender, our political affiliation, our nationality, and so forth. Um, and people don't always realize how the way they speak is this critical part of their identity. So, I mean, the language you use or the accent you use to say it, and that can be so important for guiding who you connect with, but then also who you might feel prejudiced against or how somebody might evaluate you. And so our speech can just be this really critical force of uh, social identity. I remember uh, comedian, um, I'll think of it here in a minute, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, who used just made a fortune uh, poking fun at his own heritage as being from the South and having an accent and a drawl. And there were a couple of times in his uh, in his comedy when he made reference to 
he'd say, uh, I don't know why it is, but whenever there's a tornado, they, the TV stations pick the dumbest among us <laughs> to, to put on in it, and it reinforces this stereotype that makes people think that if you have a southern drawl, you're maybe less intelligent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not a fair stereotype, um, but it's out there in the world. Um, you know, I've done some research with kids. So, you know, elementary school age kids in the North and the South and find that around by around fourth grade or so, so nine or 10 year old kids in both locations start to get access to the stereotype. And so sometimes even if you live in the South, you could kind of have this stereotype that the way you speak isn't seen by others as being, you know, something that's as smart um, as uh, a northern way of speaking. And, of course, that's not fair, uh, but the stereotype's out there. Catherine, in a case like that, does it, does it impact aspirations? It's such a good question. Um, and, you know, what psychology research finds in general is that these kind of subtle beliefs you can have either about other people or about yourself can be so impactful in terms of how you view yourself or, you know, what you think you're going to accomplish in life or how other people see you because so many of inter our interactions in the world are really these kind of split-second judgments. Like, you don't always take the time to get to know everybody, right, and figure out if somebody really is smart or really is someone you want to talk to. Often when we're interacting with people, it's just, it's fast, and people make split-second judgments about each other. So I think that these kinds of biases that we can hold can be so impactful in so many different areas of life. Is there a... a I don't, I'm not even sure how to phrase this exactly, but um, is, is there a, a specific language or um, rules of language that everyone should adapt so as not to have those uh, yeah. differences that separate us? So it's it's like there's something kind of intuitively appealing about the idea of, well, why don't we just all speak exactly the same way, right? And then nobody could be biased against anybody else because we'd all just, you know, speak the same way. But the thing is that that's just not how, it's not how humans work and it's not how language works. And humans create language. So language is created by people and by children in particular, and languages are constantly changing. And the reason for that is that when a group of people come together, and they like each other, and they form a social community, their language grows more similar. And then, of course, the flip side of that is as groups grow apart, their language can really quickly diversify. And so, you know, you could take the example thinking way back when, imagine two groups of humans who move to different sides of a mountain range over a couple generations, their language is going to start to sound different simply because they're apart. But in modern times, you don't need a mountain range to separate groups, that we find lots of reasons to separate ourselves and so it's just our language is so critical to our social lives that it's changing along with the social groups that we create. I, I've told this story before, um, but I think you'll appreciate it. It's um, I was in the South, traveling in the South. It was uh, late at night, stopped for gas in uh, somewhere in Macon County, Georgia. 
And there was a, a woman who waited on me. I'd been driving all night. And so for the first time on the trip, I, I encountered a southern drawl. And I commented on how beautiful the woman's accent was and asked her without thinking, where are you from? And she said, Detroit. And, you know, it, it occurs to me, and I've known other people who have moved from the north to the south, and within a very short time, there, it doesn't have to be a mountain, it doesn't have to be two or three generations, mm -hmm. that, that um, beginning to talk like others around you happens very quickly. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. I think of language in two ways. So one way is that it's always changing. So as you said, you know, you move from the north to the south, or even just if you're in a conversation with somebody and you really like each other and you're hitting it off, your vowels start to get just a little bit closer to each other. So it's like moment to moment, your language is reflecting your social encounters in the world. So in that sense, it's really changeable. But then kind of from a bigger picture sense, it's so hard to learn a new language and a non-native accent as an adult and really sound like somebody who grew up speaking it. So on the other hand, often our voice, you know, when you speak, you're saying something kind of about where you are in your current social life, but you're also often showing people the voices who were talking to you when you were a child. How do we unlearn the biases we have about certain things and 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 i'll just I'll, I'll give one example and perhaps you can come up with some some better ones but mm -hmm. when um you know an african-american politician is speaking and i've heard people say this he's so articulate yeah and and, and that's the tough one yeah and and you know that's one of those those microaggressions that we don't even realize is is happening um what how do, how do we unlearn that that impulse to have that expectation mm -hmm. that the person is going to talk a certain way yeah so i mean one this is such a hard and such an important question but i think the way you just phrased it is really really helpful, um, which is to examine those biases, right? And so it's something that sounds like a compliment. It sounds positive when you say it, but as you said, it's revealing this, you know, structure of biases under the surface that's clearly prejudiced, right? And so I think that being aware talking about it and being somewhat open-minded to realize that, you know, people can do better and oftentimes people aren't aware of their own biases. They're not aware that saying something like that actually reveals some prejudice thinking underneath the hood, so to speak. And so I think talking about it, calling it out and giving space for people to try to think about it and try to do better, I think is the right way to handle it. Now, how I, I haven't had a chance to uh, actually read your book yet, and I apologize for that, Catherine. I try to at, at least um, get get a, a cursory look before I uh, talk with somebody, especially about a book that's this in depth. Um, what went into the the um, collection of material that's covered in this book? Um, what was the research like? Yeah. So I'm a developmental and social psychologist. 
which means that I study people, but nothing at all clinical. So when you think about a psychology book, it's not about any sort of, um, you know, clinical approach or um, it's really just about understanding how people come to think about social groups in the world, in groups and out groups, and how we become prejudiced. And a lot of my research focuses on kids. And I think it's important to study kids both because, you know, we can all agree that kids are incredibly important and we want to do our best by them but also kids become adults and so if we want to understand ourselves as adults oftentimes knowing the starting point is really important and so I found in a lot of my research that really early in life kids care a lot about how somebody speaks and it gives them this social insight into the world so even sometimes before kids really know much about race or are thinking much about race. Now, they're learning about race, particularly in America, where there's a lot of racism out there, unfortunately, that kids are learning. Um, But, you know, even before they're starting to really think about much about other social categories that we have as adults, they're really picking up on language and they're seeing language as this like really important marker of who somebody is and whether there's somebody you might want to interact with. You know, I have some studies, things like whether kids want to eat a new food, if they see somebody who speaks their language first eating that food. So language just provides such an important social way of connection for kids really early in life. I remember, uh, I don't know what what made me think of this just now but my daughter one time when my car broke down suggested that I take it to the chiropractor <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that <laughs> you were talking about people making up their own language um, yeah I like that and that that's 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 one of my favorites um, although mm-hmm. kids do uh, very often uh, in the process of experimenting and exploring with language come up with some some interesting uh, versions on their own Um, Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting how much language impacts um, children when they're learning to speak Um, that's that's an important part of the process isn't it yeah so I mean kids are just these miraculous language learners um you know so so i have a baby he's nine months old and i'm just watching him you know starting to understand us and soon he's going to be producing some words and it's such a faster time course than an adult who wants to learn a language right so by the time a kid is maybe three or so they're basically you know a fully proficient speaker of the language or languages that they're hearing um, certainly by the age of five versus you imagine an adult going to take a language class somewhere and it's just so difficult Um, so you know babies come into the world ready to learn language and interestingly enough they can actually start to hear differences in different languages. So babies start listening before they're born. It sounds like, you know, some muffled sounds underwater, but right away at birth, they can hear the difference between a language that they heard their mom speaking and a different language. So they kind of come into the world ready to learn, and in particular to learn the sounds that they're exposed to. Catherine, I have to put a comma here. Um, I have to go to break. Can you stick around for a few minutes and we can talk some more about your book, How You Say It? by uh, Professor Catherine Kinsler. We'll return with more right after this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us, at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. I was telling you a little while ago about my wife, and I don't want you to be confused, but we were, I've been married more, more than once. In fact, I've been married three, three times. But my first two wives each died a very tra- tragic death. My first wife died from eating po- poison mushrooms. And my second wife died from a fractured skull. She wouldn't eat her mushrooms. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsodent flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we continue my conversation with Ph.D. Catherine Kinsler, who teaches psychology at the University of Chicago and has a uh, new book called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. Catherine, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Um, in, in the last segment, we were talking a lot about um, oh, some cultural differences, uh, north and south and uh, black and white. But um, one of the interesting things is this phrase in the title of your book, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. Um, there are two ways to look at that, what it says about you, to other people, but to yourself. What can we learn about the way we talk? Yeah. So the way you talk is informed by so many probably really meaningful things in your life, right? And so I think that thinking about the way you speak as being a sign of who you are and how you fit in the social world, you know, gets in these really kind of weighty issues. So a lot of the reasons for why you talk are going to be the languages you're exposed to when you're a child. You know, we're so much better at learning languages as a kid. And so all the voices that you heard as a young child are in many ways reflected in your voice today. And so it's really hard to move to, say, a new country or even to move across this country. And often there'll still be, you know, parts of your voice that are going to stick out to somebody as saying, oh, you sound like you're maybe not quite from around here, right? You can't, you're kind of showing to people um, where you grew up often when you speak. But the other thing that your voice can tell people about you is, and you might think about yourself and your voice, is about who you are today and even where you're going. And so a lot of times as our language kind of shifts across the course of our lives, it often reflects new social lives new places you want to go, new people you feel connected to. And so it can also be a change across your life to really show who you are today, not just who you were in the past. What's, um, how important, I mean, what's the impact of pronunciation or enunciation? So, there's a lot of features of the way you speak, um, and they're all, you know, they're all important. Um, but what I would say is that a, a lot of what you hear when you kind of identify somebody as not being around here, often vowels are something that are a really quick giveaway. Um, so, you know, just a slightly different way of pronouncing vowels or a slightly different rhythm or cadence to your speech um, can be something that people pick up on really quickly. And the um, the other thing that I wanted to ask about, and, and this concerns me a little, is the impact of social media on language overall. Um, yeah. Is it, is it damaging um, the way we communicate with each other uh, through language? Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting question, and, you know, just in general, the, there's such enormous changes in our, you know, online communication, virtual communication. I think now even, you know, even just in the past few months, there's just been an explosion of virtual communication, right, given the world that we live in today. Um, so I think there's a lot of change that's happening. Now, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that 
kind of for as long as we've been able to measure language and reflect on our experiences, older generations have always been concerned that younger generations were in some way damaging the speech. And so, you know, (laughs) I like to think about it in that context, right? So like when we were kids, probably there was somebody, you know, there was an adult who thought, oh, these teenagers, this is just not the proper way to speak. Um, And then for them, you know, when our grandparents were kids, the same thing was said about them and so forth. And so the idea is that often young people are changing the language. And that's not... That's not good or bad. That's just how language works is that it changes. And so these changes are kind of coming up from the adolescent generation and the young people. And then adults are looking at it and saying, oh, this feels wrong to me somehow. Yet as those adolescents become adults, they're going to think the same thing of their children. And so it's just the cycle of how language works. And in many ways, uh, young people are the changers of language because their social lives are changing, right? They're changing the culture. They're kind of breaking off from how their parents did things in some ways, and then that's going to be reflected in the way that they talk. Well, there there are certain things that, that come into a language um, because of new technology, for example. Mm-hmm. And so very often younger people are speaking a language that's different than their um, parents or their grandparents just because of new stuff, new words in the language. But are they also impacting the fundamental structure of the language? They can be, absolutely. So, you know, if we look at what was English like a thousand years ago, and we wouldn't be able to understand it. And so that's not to say that, you know, every year it's changing dramatically and you couldn't understand what the kids are saying, but absolutely, uh, you know, what's considered grammatically acceptable, new words come into play. These are slightly, you know, slightly drifting or changing. um, And these changes, you know, change the structure of the language over time. How much do those changes... um bleed amongst groups that are considered to be separate geographically or racially? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so languages infuse and inform each other in really fascinating ways. And so, you know, you can see for any given language or even a dialect, um, it, uh, one dialect or another. So, you know, just as an aside, if we're talking about English in the U.S., there's many different ways of speaking English in the U.S. and different dialects, they're all equally correct. They're, you know, they have grammatical structures that are internally coherent and consistent. Um, they have a system, you know, a systematic form of grammar and pronunciation that speakers adhere to. And so it's really easy to think, you know, oh, I don't have an accent or the way I'm speaking is correct, but everybody has an accent and no one way or another is necessarily, no one way or another of speaking is necessarily better at than any other, all dialects convey all the content that people want to express. And when they come in contact with each other, they absolutely inform and cause the language to grow. And and is it growth? I mean, we think of uh, new words and phrases, colloquialisms, if you will. And of course, I mentioned before, just things that exist now that didn't 50 or 100 years ago. I, I, I doubt if anybody a hundred years ago, ever uttered the phrase microwave oven. Um, 
So there's this new stuff, but mm-hmm. but there's something going on with the fundamental language itself. Is it is it abbreviating or or is it expanding? Because I think of social media <laughs> yeah. and those, you know, mm-hmm. BRB and um, mm. ROTF and you know all of that, <laughs> you know, all of those uh, shortcuts. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. is is the language expanding or contracting? I don't think. When I think about it, it would be just more that it's changing and it's changing in line with the social usage of its speakers so and that might mean different things at different point in time right it could be adding a bunch of new words or as you're giving these condensing examples right it could be you know figuring out a way to say something that people understand you now for any new term basically what you have is you have this idea that um, you know something takes off if everybody agrees to it so there's a certain amount of arbitrariness of language as for which word means what but all it takes is a community of speakers to agree to a term and then it takes off from there and then other people start using it so I would just think of it as change and change that reflects whatever the social needs are of the speakers is it something that's going on um is it less likely to change in countries where there isn't the kind of diversity that there is in in the united states yeah so i mean on the one hand the u.s is very diverse on the other hand, um, there's many countries that are out there that have such a far greater degree of multilingualism than we do in the U.S. And so it, I would say that in general, a given language is going to shift and change in, lo- in line with social changes. And so, you know, absolutely a diversity of groups of people can cause social changes in the language. At the same time, being exposed to multiple languages is something that can be really beneficial for kids. Um, and so I also think it's important to note that in many ways we, you know, we lack some linguistic diversity that other countries have, um, which isn't to say that we don't have a tremendous number of languages spoken in the U.S. and a tremendous number of people who speak more than one language. But if you look at, you know, rates of second language instruction in school, we're actually falling behind many of our peers. Is it helpful for people to study some of the words that have made it into what we consider uh, uh, proper English that have their roots in other languages? So what I think of as, most helpful is being in a language in a social context. So, you know, schools are a great place to teach languages, particularly to kids, because they're the age when their little minds are just so ready to learn language. But sometimes I think about the experience that a kid who's hearing multiple languages has, and 
it's a really diverse social experience. So even if you're not bilingual yourself, if you're just exposed to different people who speak different languages, you're going through a mental thought process, something like, oh, well, you know, grandma speaks this way and mom understands, but dad doesn't, or maybe we speak this language here and this language in this other place, or maybe I'm learning this in school, but I speak this at home and so forth. And so it's just this massive training and practice in taking other people's perspectives and that's what I think is just so important for people and kids especially to get because taking other people's perspectives is an incredibly important hallmark of effective communication and interpersonal understanding. So I think thinking of just being exposed to different languages is something that can be really positive for us and you know, a value that I hope people promote. I, you know, I've had this, this experience myself, and it's always kind of embarrassing when I do. I'm talking to someone else who speaks English, but they start using words or phrases, colloquialisms, that I have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you go about bridging that that? gap in mm-hmm. comprehension is it yeah. is it best just to say i have no idea what you're talking about you know please explain this to me or or as i've done on a couple of occasions just nod and pretend you understand yeah <laughs> so you know your nodding and understanding experience is probably more common than you think because I mean, communication is fascinating, or as I think about it, communication breakdown is fascinating. Like, we often think that we're much better communicators than we are, and I think one of the reasons we do that is because we underestimate or underappreciate the role of the listener. And so, you know, what you said about should I ask a follow-up question, should I clarify, like, you're really explaining an engaged listener, and I think that's a great thing to be. So there's a lot of studies about how communication can break down, and often it's not that the person speaking said something unclear. Rather, it's that the person listening thinks they can't understand, and then what they do is they kind of shut down and stop trying to understand. And so then they don't ask a follow-up question or, you know, they think, oh, this person's just, you know, this person's just a really unclear communicator where actually research shows how much of communication is collaborative and people talking back and forth. And so if you're not understanding something, often it's your role as a listener to try to, you know, try to do a better job listening and then that helps the other person do a better job speaking. How much does culture determine the language and language determine the 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 culture yeah they're really tied up together and so when people feel the sense of cultural identity often speaking a language is just such a critical part of their feelings of culture and in fact when you look at situations in the world where say you know one group wants to oppress another group often trying to oppress using their language is just an incredibly powerful and painful tool that, unfortunately, humans do a lot of bad things to each other, as we know, and that's been a particularly devastating one, that trying to take away a group of people's, you know, people's language, that can be such a hit to their feelings of culture. But yet it seems seems so natural to... um to assume that communication is better 
if everyone under one big umbrella speaks mm-hmm. the same language. Yeah. So I think that it's just people's language shifts to mark their identities. And so we're just never going to be in a situation where everybody in the world speaks one language exactly the same way. At the same time, I think that language learning with the goal of mutual understanding is so important. And so, you know, I think it's really, really important for kids in the U.S. who just hear English to learn another language. At the same time, I also think it's really, really important for schools to provide really amazing services to kids who don't hear English at home to help them learn English in school. And so it really goes both ways with um where I think there's such there's so much to be gained by better language instruction all around. And with language, especially as much as it changes and evolves, does that impact the um, uh, uh, basic structure of the language for people that are teaching it? Wait, sorry, can you... So to... Um, well, like for example, when I was in when I was in grade school, um, I, I remember having to diagram sentences. I'm not sure that those same diagrams would fit a lot of the sentences that I use and hear. Um, does it change the structure of the language, and what does that do to educators trying to to stay current with the language? So I think that when you think back on the the diagramming the sentences and the, um, you know, that kind of formalistic way of teaching a language, in my mind at least, the benefit is learning languages in this more social way. And so in that sense, the way people produce language together, that's a correct way of doing it. And so I think when you're thinking about kids, giving them the tools to speak languages and giving them really good examples of people speaking languages is really important. And, you know, for me at least, when I think about, you know, my own kids, that I want them to be exposed to people who speak different in different ways more than, you know, I'm particularly concerned about their, their sentence diagramming capabilities. Um, how do we train ourselves to not, turn off our listening Mm -hmm. to people who speak differently than we do uh, perhaps through uh through accent or um some of the language yeah so i think even just you know you saying that it's really important that you know to have listeners even just thinking that that's something that might happen because i think that we really don't think about language enough in this country and we don't realize that we could be turning off you know so i think even just acknowledging that possibility and you know knowing that that's something that could happen to any of us and so if you find yourself not listening or you know feeling like you don't understand take a second and think oh wait if i if i asked a follow up question if i you know if i paid more attention actually is this something i could understand now there's a lot of fascinating studies showing things like basic feelings of credibility 
are all wrapped up in accent. And so somebody could say exactly the same phrase in one of two different accents, and people will think that one person just sounds a little bit more credible than the other. Or even things like hearing a fact about the world, like you learn some basic bit of information, and do you think it's true or false? Well, the voice of the person who provided that information is going to impact whether or not you believe it. And so I think just knowing how these biases about language can seep into our really simple judgments of who we believe or what we think is true, I think that being somewhat aware of that can help people. It, and, and it is funny how we, we look at people with a British accent, for example, and, mm-hmm. and they could say the same thing as somebody with a southern drawl. And the person with the southern drawl sounds not as intelligent as the person with the British accent. And then to add to that, you could take, so for an American ear, hearing differences in British accents is really challenging. We're so much better at accents that are close to home and telling the difference. So then you could go to the UK and people would draw all these different myriad distinctions among different accents in the UK, right, where some sound very posh and others less so. And so, you know, you could just kind of keep that in mind that we've got these stereotypes here, but then you could take that very same accent and, you know, bring it to a group of British speakers and they would say, oh, no, you know, that's not, that's not an accent <laughs> that I would trust. And so, you know, how much of that is our subjective stereotypes about different cultures and not really actually anything about that particular person. Catherine, how did you get interested in studying language? Well, you know, I was really interested in childhood and in understanding how our social thinking develops as we grow. Um, I did have one experience with languages right before I started some of my research in graduate school where I was traveling right before I started graduate school and I was actually taking a language class um, in Croatia in the former Yugoslavia and I had this textbook and it was called Serbo-Croatian. But then I got there and nobody, nobody said that. And so people there would say, oh, I speak Serbian or Croatian or Bosnian. And so, you know, from the American textbook point of view, it was all one language. But then you got there and, you know, in, uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, people really saw their linguistic identity as being so important. And so, you know, I think you don't have to travel uh, all the way to Croatia to notice this, that you can look around the U.S., you can look around many different places and just see how critical language is for people's feelings of identity and how we judge each other based on our speech. And so from there, I got really interested in studying how kids also start to think about people who speak in different ways. Catherine, we just have about a minute left, uh, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about you and the work you do. The book is How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. The author is uh, Professor Catherine Kinsler from the University of Chicago. Catherine, do you have a website? Sure, I do have a website where um, you could read more about the book and also about my research and, you know, meet my fabulous graduate students who work with me on the research. Um, the lab website is dsclab.uchicago.edu. And so um, 
it's a yeah, it's a website where I talk about my research and the book dsclab.uchicago.edu. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I can't believe how fast it's gone. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. All right, take care. We're going to take a uh, short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze in. We have some messages online as well. We'll be back. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual play dates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, 
table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. It may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Cannot get on a bus Because one hippopotami Is two hippopotamus And if you have two goose That makes one geese A pair of mouse is mice A pair of moose is me Paranoia is a bunch of mental blocks. And when Ben Casey meets Kildare, that's called a paradox. When two minks fall in love with all their heart and soul, you'll find the plural of two minks is one mink stole Singulars and plurals are so different Bless my soul Has it ever occurred to you That the plural of half is whole? Bunch of tooth is teeth. A group of foot is feet. And two canaries make a pair. They call it a parakeet. A paramecium is not a pair. A parallelogram is just a crazy square. <laughs> no, 
Nobody knows just what a paraphernalia is And what is half a pair of scissors? It's a single sizz With someone you adore If you should find romance You'll pant and pant once more And that's a pair This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
mighty pretty you see Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico Flagstaff, Arizona, don't forget Winona Kingston, Boston, San Bernardino Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all my guests, starting with uh, Catherine Kinsler from the University of Chicago, professor of psychology and author of How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. And before that, a uh, very fascinating uh, conversation with uh, Dr. Tom Cooper, author of Doing the Right Thing, um, 12 Portraits, in moral courage, talking about ethics and all kinds of interesting stuff. And then our make good uh, during the first hour of today's uh, three-hour tour with um, Dr. Ron Park, Executive Vice President of Health and DNA at Ancestry, talking about their new launch of Ancestry Health, where regular consumers like us can uh, have DNA uh, testing done that uh, indicates uh, uh, ways of taking greater control of your health because they can predict certain kinds of things that you might be predisposed to. Um, had the interview last week and aired it last week, but something happened with, uh, with the interview and uh, it, the, the whole interview didn't play. So we heard the, the uh, interview with Dr. Ron Park in entirety today during the first hour. Anyway, that's Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head down the hallway to the living room, but uh, I'll be back here in the bunker tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.